everybody. My name is Karen Valentine, and I'll be reading today's from the book of John, chapter 19, beginning in verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Thank you, Karen, for reading our passage this morning. You know, Karen's awesome. She's uh, one of our junior high youth leaders. And uh, I know she sounds sweet and all, but you ought to see her jump out there into the game. She can she can chuck a dodgeball pretty good. Uh, but she's great. She always brings the energy. She has a huge heart for God, and it's evident in how she loves on the team. So thank you for reading, but also all that you do in our youth ministry. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you all in the house of God worshiping together. My name is Gary, I'm the youth pastor, and uh, I've been given the opportunity to preach on our next passage in John 19, and really this is as we continue on, really the tail end of Jesus' crucifixion is what we're going to cover this morning, and this is the second part of what Pastor Brent talked about last Sunday, and this is really as we draw closer to the end of John's gospel account, but before we get into it, I really would like to open in prayer, so if you could please join me, let's pray. Dear God, as we come before you this morning, Lord, we want to thank you for all that you've done and that you do for us every single day. Lord, your mercies are new and you are so gracious and you love us so much. God, we ask that you give us your understanding and insight into scripture this morning. And Lord, we pray that you speak to our hearts in a way that motivates change and a stronger desire to live for you. Lord, I pray that you speak through me in a way that's, that brings glory and honor to you and you alone. And I ask all this in your precious and holy name. Amen. Well, as we've seen, John 19 is a serious passage. And I have to admit, I was a little intimidated with having to preach on it. It's not necessarily, well, it's a little different than what I'm used to. It's not necessarily a time for humor, jokes, and lightheartedness. And 
I wrestled with whether to keep it extremely serious or, you know, when to lighten the mood at times. And I felt myself feeling sad and heavy when I really thought about what took place on that very first Good Friday. However, this is all something we really need to take a good look at and fight that urge of wanting to look away in the other direction. You know, Satan doesn't want us to take time to look at the cross. He doesn't want us to take time to look at the gory details. He'd rather us just forget it. Because when we do that, then the true impact of what our sin debt cost kind of fades away. So we need to see how much he truly suffered for us and understand the true weight and gravity of what was done on our behalf. Now, as we heard last week, a crucifixion was the most cruel way of death possible. The Romans didn't come up with it, but they seemed to dial in and figure out how to maximize it to make it the most excruciating way to die. In fact, they didn't even use it on their own people. It was designated for the foreigners and the the worst kind of criminals. It was long. It was painful. And we can't fully grasp how much pain was inflicted and endured. Now, Pastor Brent, over the past couple weeks, has touched on some of the some of the pain that Jesus went through. And I think probably most of us picture it in the way that they depict it in the Passion of Christ. And although they they really do a good job, they depict it really well, it still doesn't convey the true weight of what he bore for us. And so this is a sobering thought, and I hope today brings about a greater appreciation for our Lord and what he endured for us on the cross, but also uh, what his death on the cross for us as as we move forward, what it means for us as we move forward. Now, this portion of scripture in John is extremely important, not only from a historical standpoint, but even more so doctrinally. Jesus died on the cross. He was crucified and he was fully buried. This is a hinge point of our salvation and our hope of heaven someday. So we must know and believe every word of this account is true and accurate. And it's exactly what God wanted us to know and understand. You see, the foundation was set long ago and we're now getting to see it play out. Now, when I used to work uh, finished carpentry years ago, <laughs> my boss, Chad Cram, he always said, you need to frame something at the beginning square. If not, it's going to chase you for the rest of the job. If you're a carpenter, you understand what that means. For example, if the foundation's not square, the walls won't be square. And if the walls aren't framed square, then you go to put the baseboard on, and it's not a true 90 degrees. It requires cutting different angles. Same with the crown molding, same with the flooring, and it chases you throughout the rest of the job. So it takes a precise effort in the beginning to execute a perfect completed work. And we get to see this in Scripture as the Old Testament lays the groundwork for his perfect completed work. That's going to tie in together really well with our passage this morning. So as we come to our text, we've already seen a lot of the pain that's been afflicted. And now we get to look into Jesus's last hours, kind of his last thoughts of importance, his last conversations that he has before his his resurrection. And now it's said that uh, John wrote his book years after the crucifixion had taken place. So he's had years to mull this around in his head. He probably retold the story many times before as well. And so in a sense, he's been able to boil it down to the most important parts, kind of uh, uh, the things that stood out to him the most and share what had an impact on his own life. But more importantly, it shows he wants us to understand the excruciating pain Christ endured for us 
and for us not only to have a feeling of sadness, but a sense of gratitude for what the cross of Christ means for us and how the glory of God was brought about through it. This is how the cross becomes a beautiful picture when we look at it through the eyes of our salvation. Well, some of you may remember Super Bowl 51. (laughs) That's right, the Atlanta Falcons and New England Patriots. Sorry to bring this painful memory up for any Falcon fans in here. Uh, But thing is, is I, I remember watching that game and feeling so defeated in the first half. In fact, there was a sense of embarrassment because we were supposed to be really good and come out on top. And yet, <laughs> or at least put up a good fight, right? And yet, we were getting beat really bad. If you remember, it was 28-3 to in the third quarter. Wasn't looking good at all. But all of a sudden, the tide began to change. And every play had to go according to plan to bring about a Super Bowl victory in overtime. It was truly amazing. It really was. Now, I have since gone back and watched the replay of that Super Bowl. (laughs) It brought back some amazing emotions of what it was like watching it live. However, when I watched it replayed, though, it didn't bring back that emotion of feeling like the anxious feeling of how it was going to turn out. No. Actually, it made me appreciate every little detail that had to go just right to come together to bring about this unexpected victory. The stress of the unknown was no longer there, and I could relax knowing who the winner of the game was. In fact, I actually felt a sense of joy because I knew who won. Now, this passage we're looking at shows the disciples and believers. They're watching the events events here play out in real time. They're feeling raw emotion as they wonder if this is this really part of Jesus's plan. They're probably wrestling with Satan's lies as he's telling them Jesus is not the savior. He's going to die, and this is all going to be over. Imagine what they felt in that moment. I'm sure there was a lot of stress and anxiety and probably even fear in that moment. But from our point of view this morning, we are watching the story unfold in replay mode. The events have already happened. They've already unfolded and played out. We know Easter, Resurrection Sunday, is next Sunday. We know our Savior wins the battle. He pulls off the impossible. And so this gives us the opportunity today to slow down And appreciate all the plays that had to go just right to bring about his perfect plan. So, we're going to pick it up in verse 23, where we start. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts. A part to each soldier, and the tunic also. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This happened so the scripture would be fulfilled. They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Now, this seems kind of like an odd thing to insert right here in this passage. It's specific right down to the details of his clothing, and it doesn't even really sound like it's that important to bring up in the middle of all that's taking place. And we're going to get to more of that in a minute. But let's focus on these soldiers for a bit. These were extremely ruthless and cold ruffians. They had probably seen many crucifixions before in their lifetime, and so maybe they heard of this so-called king of the Jews, but it doesn't really seem to have an impact on them. They don't seem too phased by him, and they just continue on running their little side hustle as a supplement or, or to supplement their income at work here. And it says they do this by casting lots. This is gambling, throwing dice. They do this to uh, for the thrill of winning the most desired article of clothing. But this may have been a privilege or even part of the benefit package for the soldiers. 
But the thought of this is very shocking to you and I. No, when they were standing a few feet away from the Savior of the world and didn't even acknowledge or blush at the thought of stealing his clothes while he suffered on the cross. You know, this world can be extremely cold and bitter, right? We're reminded of this every time we watch the news or, or hear the awful things that mankind does without even giving it a second thought. doesn't even keep them up at night. In fact, I've had times when I watch the news and I see something on there and I have to look away because I can't stomach the disgusting things that are happening in the world today. That's because this is the depravity of mankind without God and truth. And in Psalms 22, David uses his, or uses the image of animals to actually describe the people who persecuted our Lord. Verse 11, he says, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Verse 13, they open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. Verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. This is because when men reject Jesus as their Lord, they become like animals. Because without God in our lives, we focus on self-preservation just like an animal. We focus on ourselves above all others. And really, I think you would agree with me, we are seeing this play out all around the world today. There is complete defiance and irreverence for our Lord. We see hatred, perversion, and violence more and more in our society. And really, accountability for those actions is becoming less and less. As truth is becoming subjective, and it's really open to anyone's interpretation these days. But this is the same as what Jeremiah warns the people of Jerusalem about. He says this about their impending destruction. Were they ashamed of the abomination they've done? They were not even ashamed at all. They didn't even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time that I punish them. You know, God warns us that every person will have to give account for their actions. But as for now, evil runs wild. And these four soldiers portray a world that has an encounter with Christ. And rather than accepting him as their savior, they deny him and just continue on living in their life full of evil and deceit and doing what's right in their own eyes. Now, left to our own flesh and devices, every single one of us in here is capable of doing what the soldiers did. We'd be able to gamble for his clothing at the foot of the cross uh, without even a hint of remorse or, or disgust at our actions while he hung on the cross. That's because this is a picture of man lost in sin and a life without God. Now, the perfect plan we're seeing play out here is actually evident as we look again at Psalms 22. Here, David's prophesying the coming events that are taking place right in our passage. And it's incredible because David describes a crucifixion, which isn't even a Jewish means of capital punishment. So it's been said that it's actually highly unlikely he ever even saw one take place. And yet David saw what would happen to Christ centuries later, as he said in verse 16. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. You know, these soldiers probably knew nothing or very little about the Old Testament, and they followed it perfectly. You see, there's something much bigger at play here in this passage. And although there is, there is a reason uh, for a sense of sadness, John, our author, doesn't allow us to lock in on it and dwell on it. He's pointing out to us that every single thing is fulfilling Scripture. 
Because it's the work of our God, our great orchestrator, as he fits these puzzle pieces together and ties together the whole of scripture with each prophecy being fulfilled. So when we hear to fulfill scripture, that allows us to soak in the story with full confidence in the Bible. And John wants us to have trust in the scriptures. And really, what better way to do so than to point out every time it's fulfilled? Let's continue on in verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopez, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Now, this is quite the contrast of the righteous and unrighteous. We see the hopelessness, the darkness of the four soldiers gambling over his clothing. Then he immediately highlights the devotion and love of his followers as they embrace and they encourage each other during this difficult time. But why were there so few followers at his crucifixion? Why was there such a lack of support in the end? Now, I imagine probably some of his followers were feeling defeated. They doubted he was the true son of God. They, they didn't understand why he didn't just come down and fight back and prove who he was. Whatever the case may have been, though, you got to think about it. The courage that it took for John and these four ladies to stand there in the midst of all that's taking place, that the crucifixion is going on, the, the hatred, the ridicule, and the violence that's taking place. But really, this must have been a huge, their presence there must have been a huge encouragement to Jesus while he hung on the cross. And here we see Christ leaves us an example, even in his pain. In his last few minutes on earth, he focused on others by taking the time to comfort John and his mother. Oh man, when I'm sick, (laughs) I milk it for all it's worth. You can ask my wife, milk it for all it's worth. I get selfish. I like having a glass of ginger ale. Oh honey, I need a bowl of soup, right? Oh, the TV remote needs to be nearby too, so I can watch what I want as I wallow around in my pain. I worry about things for myself and what comforts me. Now, maybe not even in our sickness, but what about in our trials and our struggles? We tend to focus on ourselves and wonder, oh God, why is this happening to me? But Jesus does things differently. And here, uh, Kent Hughes actually points this out for us. He says, for women, the contrast is unavoidable. I believe this was the purposeful work of our sovereign God so that Jesus' loving heart would be clearly seen in his care and provision for his own. So in the midst of his immense suffering, he focuses on his mother and John and points out that they're believers in the family of God. And Matthew, he actually records a story for us that I think gives us a little view of what he means by this. In 1246, it says, While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus replied to the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Extending his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. You see, our blood relatives on earth are not necessarily in the family of God. I know that's painful to hear. And many of us in here have close family or extended family that are not followers of Christ. And Jesus is very specific. There is only one way for salvation. He says, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. And I know it sounds exclusive because it is exclusive. However, this offer is to every single person in the world, as John 3.16 tells us. The issue is that not everyone accepts this free gift of grace that he offers. But those who have been forgiven their sins, they've accepted this gift, they recognize Jesus as their Savior, they are children of God, and they are his true family members. Now, Jesus, he's going through horrible pain. He knew he would have to face the sin and darkness alone, and yet even with all of that crushing him, he thought of his own children and took the time to care for his loved ones. This really is quite incredible that Jesus gives us an example to follow right down to his last breath. He doesn't waste a moment. Now, can you imagine the terror that Jesus' mother is facing right now while she's watching the crucifixion of her son? I don't even like watching my kids get pricked with a needle or, or go through any sort of pain. I don't like watching that at all. This must have been indescribable. And yet his concern for her during his painful agony shows his true love and compassion for others. You see, the hour, the hour had come. Mary is experiencing the sword that was predicted years before in Luke 2. It says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Mary's silence here is significant, though, because Mary knew the truth about Jesus better. She knew the truth about him better than anyone else on this earth. The angel visited her about her coming pregnancy, and also she was completely aware that she had conceived as a virgin. So all she would have had to do was announce that his claims were false. But she said nothing because she understood he was the true savior of the world. Now, it's really important, though, that we don't make her more than she was. She was still a sinner just like you and I in need of a savior to forgive her sins. John Piper says, if Jesus could provide for the needs of his own in a moment of his deepest weakness and humiliation, how much more can he provide for your need in his present power and exaltation? Jesus is our great provider, and we're instructed to be like him to others. So with this example we see in Christ here, we need to ask ourselves, how are we encouraging or taking care of those in our church body? You know, God has called us to care for the, the least of these and to help the poor and widows. Now, I'm not saying it's a conscious effort, effort on our part to avoid helping others. In fact, I think most of us in here truly want to help. I think we see the need and we want to be there for it. We have a heart for it. But if you're like me, usually busyness or something else keeps you from putting boots to the ground and actually doing something about it. But Jesus shows us that there's no excuse for neglecting anyone in our church family. And as we're in a season where we're encouraging unity here in our church family, this is a good time for us to reassess this, these, these roles and responsibilities, and see if we are caring for those in our church body. Now let's continue on to verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scripture would be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Now, my mouth right now is getting dry just talking to you guys. I can't imagine the hours spent on the cross panting for breath and the physical pain that he was feeling, this must have brought on severe dehydration. 
So his plea was that of a real human thirst. And it's interesting that they used a hyssop branch because this is what the Israelites used as they painted the blood on the doorpost at the Passover. And this was as the, de- the death angel actually would come and, and this would make him pass by because the doorposts were painted. But just like we talked about earlier, the foundation was laid precisely in the Old Testament as it pointed ahead to the coming events of our Savior. And just like the baseboard and the crown molding, they fit into place just right as the plan comes together. You know, it's like playing the game Connect the Dots, right? It's pretty easy. It's fun. The concept's easy to pick up. You just draw a line from dot to dot, and as you do that, it reveals the bigger picture. We see this in Scripture as it goes from dot to dot, from prophecy and stories, and it reveals the bigger picture, which is all about Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And God intended this from the very beginning. Now, it's Celtic season right now. We're closing up, I think, the last game of the season tonight. (laughs) But if you watch a game and, and one of the players is struggling to make a shot during the game, oftentimes a free throw or a foul shot will give him that confidence. It'll build up his confidence because he's able to slow down and watch the ball go through the hoop. So as we slow down and we see each prophecy fulfilled, this helps build our trust and confidence in him. And our buddy Peter, we've heard a lot about Peter, He's ambitious, he's ready to fight for God, but also he's one of the ones who denies God to a little girl. And uh, he understands the importance, and after he witnessed what Christ did, he writes, he writes to us in Second Peter about the confidence in Christ. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So it's not just a big coincidence these Old Testament authors were writing about these things to come. They actually happened, and they were documented for our understanding. This is the real deal, and the Bible is alive. So we must trust the whole of Scripture. This is important. John has a point to prove here. And so he focuses on tying the word of God and Jesus together. He starts off right at the beginning of his book. If you remember John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. And now we see in John's final account of Jesus on the cross that he highlights the fulfilled scripture. Now, there's always been and there will always be those who make excuses for not believing in Bible and Jesus. And as we get farther away from the actual events, this actually makes it easier and easier really to dismiss the Bible as made up stories. However, no one can deny and ignore their own impending death. Even the world understands they're eventually going to die. And so every single person in the world has to ask themselves, what is going to happen to me after I die? 
Now, some may push it aside, and then others may say, you know what, I'll answer it later on. But the important thing is, is that if you are not accepting Jesus, if you do not believe in him and recognize him as your savior, you'll be just like the soldiers who were a few feet away from him and yet still on the wrong side of the cross. Now, here in our passage, every move is an accurate and precise act of what the Old Testament announces. And it points to the fact that God is in control from the very beginning to the very end. And that actually gives us hope and assurance of his sovereignty over our lives. But it's really like an incredible game of chess, you know, where one move could actually cost you the game. The same goes with scripture. If there was even one prophecy that was not fulfilled about the coming of Jesus, we could throw it all out as being not credible. What about in a relationship? If there's even one lie, that can break the trust, someone's trust big time. Think of the weight it would bear if there was even one lie in scripture. Now, many people dismiss scripture in whole because they've heard or seen a passage that seems to contradict another passage. And so therefore, it must be all false and they just throw it out. And for those of you who are going to a university this fall, this will probably be one of the first arguments you hear in an attempt to dissuade you from your parents' faith. They're going to point out the Bible is flawed and you can't trust it. Now, another popular argument that may arise is the variations between the gospel accounts, these gospel writers between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this is actually one we discussed a couple weeks ago in youth group to see if it disproves the Bible. This is the example we used. Now, my wife, Chelsea, and I, if we went to a high school football game, okay, and we came back, and you said, Gary, how was the game? And I came back, I said, you know, it was awesome. The quarterback had some great plays. Defense had some great hits. Oh, yeah, and the Bulldogs won in a last-second Hail Mary pass from the quarterback to the receiver. Now, if you ask my wife, Chelsea, hey, Chelsea, how was the game? She may say, well, you know, it was cold and windy. The food was good. The uniforms were bright and colorful. Oh, yeah, and the Bulldogs won with a pass from this guy named Mary for a touchdown in the end. (laughs) You see, we were both eyewitnesses from the same game. However, it was from two different viewpoints. And even though there were small variations, the end result and the important details were the same. And this actually lends credibility to the accounts. This is just like the Gospels. They all describe the life of Jesus, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. This is so important for us to grasp that every single word in Scripture is inspired by God and will come to pass. Just because someone comes along with a good argument and you don't know the answer doesn't mean there's not an answer. There is always an answer and explanation that proves Scripture is accurate and true. John understands the importance of this, and that's why he continues pointing out when scripture is fulfilled. Now, truth today has been watered down and uh, so much these days. And really the Bible, we see it's even picked apart to see what verses motivate or can fit into someone's agenda. This is why we also see so many religions claiming they're correct and using the Bible to support their beliefs. But even Satan, he's a deceiver. So he uses the word of God to lead people astray. But the bottom line is that you can't choose some passages to believe and leave the others. It's all or nothing. And our buddy John, who wrote the book of John here, he also wrote Revelations. And this is what he says in 2218. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, 
God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. The fulfillment of scripture is paramount to our faith. And thank God he didn't leave us to wonder if these prophecies would ever be fulfilled. Well, as we come to some of Jesus's last words in verse 30, he says, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This sip of sour wine here gave him the strength to belt out his last words. It wasn't a whisper. It was a victory cry. And I imagine the onlookers, the ones who were standing by watching the crucifixion took place, didn't even understand the importance of what he spoke. But with those words came the opportunity for a new hope, came the opportunity for transformation, a new life, and came the opportunity for every single one of us in here to be reunited with our Heavenly Father and true love. This made a possible way out of an impossible situation, and he saved every single one of us from an eternity in hell. You see, God's holiness and justice made the cross an absolute necessity. His wrath required a payment because the sin that was committed even way back in Genesis. And so by saying it is finished, Jesus is signaling to the Jewish world that there's no more temples, no more need for them, no more need for sacrifices because his death fulfilled what that sacrificial system even foreshadowed. And he talked about this throughout his ministry. The temple would be destroyed and the law fulfilled. And it's taken place right in front of their eyes. I really wonder, though, if, if Jesus' teachings are coming back to John right now as he's watching the crucifixion before him. This statement, though, it is finished, gives us the freedom to live without guilt, shame, and that impossible way to the law. In fact, it is finished in Greek is the term uh, tetelestai. And it referred to when, when an artist completed a picture or when a writer completed their manuscript. It would be tetelestai. Um, but the thing is here, when Jesus died on the cross, this completed the picture that God had been painting and really the story he'd been writing for centuries here. Now, this word to was also used as an accounting term. And this is interesting because there has been actual ancient papyrus tax receipts. That was a uh, tongue twister. <laughs> papyrus tax receipts, they've found actual receipts that wrote to across the side of it. That means because it was paid in full, it was done. You see, God accepted the work of the son on the cross and he stamped it and said, it is finished. It's done. It's paid. The wrath of God has been satisfied because Jesus drank the cup of wrath for you and I. None of the Old Testament sacrifices could take away sins. Their blood covered it temporarily. But when Jesus, the lamb of God came and shed his blood, it took away all the sins once and for all. And Hebrews 9 says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he's been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is one of the most important points in our faith. Jesus fully died and his perfect sinless blood covered our sin debt once and for all. In fact, it paid our debt of our sins past, present, and even our future sins that we still are going to commit. 
This obviously doesn't give us the right to sin freely and abuse his grace. But what this does mean is that he paid the debt that none of us could pay. This is why so many other religions say you must do something to earn your salvation. But this act right here that we saw paid the debt. All we have to do is recognize it and accept it. Now, again, we are watching this in replay mode. So when we hear it is finished, we understand that this is the final play that brings about victory in the end. Even though the opposing team still thinks they won by driving the last nail in the cross. We who are reading these scriptures today can look at this with joy and excitement, knowing the cross that was meant to defeat Jesus was actually our victory all along. It is finished. These are words that Satan believed he'd won the battle. It's a checkmate sort of move. But rather, these words reveal that Satan had been defeated and he had no idea. It's a powerful statement that made our salvation official. Now, at the end of the passage, we read that Jesus gave up his spirit. He bowed his head, but I want you to know it wasn't in shame. He had complete death or complete control over his death in that moment. Just like we're going to be dismissed here, he said he dismissed his spirit. We'll be dismissed from church shortly in the same way. John wants you and I to know that it wasn't crucifixion that killed him. He could have written, then he died, but he wrote, he dismissed his spirit because it was his will. Jesus says in John 10, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. We now understand the redemption and the reconciliation that was accomplished on our behalf. But it's going to take an eternity to reveal everything that was actually happened when Jesus died on the cross. And someday when we're in heaven, it'll all be revealed to us. Worship team, if you could please make your way on down. You know, the fulfillment of scripture gives us confidence in his words. It assures us we can stake our lives on it. And every time we hear to fulfill scripture, this should put more and more weight into Jesus's words. So when we're promised in scripture that we're justified freely forever, we never have to worry about losing our salvation. When we're told we can come with confidence with great, or to his throne of grace, we can come in full confidence knowing that he'll forgive our sins every single time we come and remember them no more. This is all part of his master plan and every word will come to pass. And this is what gospel centered is all about. Remembering what was done on our behalf and what we've been called to do as his followers. If you could, please stand with me. Let's close in prayer. Dear God, Lord, thank you for your love and how you showed it on the cross for us. Lord, we ask you to remind us daily of what it cost you and how you suffered for us. Lord, help us to place our trust in you and your word as we see the accuracy of how you fit it all together from the very beginning to the very end. We pray for your your blessing and will on our lives this week as we serve you with a thankful heart. And we ask you to bring us back safely next Sunday, God, as we celebrate the empty tomb, the Resurrection Sunday, Lord. We love you and ask all this in your precious and holy name. Amen.